Well, there are some great English words, aren't there? And there is no better English word, I think, than oxymoron. Oxymoron is just such a great word. What's an oxymoron? It's a, a, an oxymoron is a, a group of words that seem to be in conflicting, that seem to be contradictory, that seem to be conflicting in some way. Um, like crash landing, that's a great oxymoron, you know, not a great thing to do, but that's a great oxymoron. Deafening silence is a great oxymoron. Unbiased opinion, I love it when people say that. In my unbiased opinion, like, well, if it's your opinion, then it's definitely biased. Everyone's opinion is biased. It's another great oxymoron. So anyone who loves studying English at uh, school is already thinking of all the great oxymorons. They're just so enjoying this, thinking they're probably not going to listen to a word else I say. They're just going to be thinking of all the great oxymorons they can think of. Everyone else, uh, not so much. But there is a point, because we are studying at the moment the, the Beatitudes, the, uh, uh, a series of uh, teachings of Jesus that come from the Sermon on the Mount, some of the most famous Je uh, teachings that Jesus uh, ever gave. And um, on the surface of it, they are filled with oxymorons. They're filled with seemingly contradictory statements. And yet when you dig in, you start to see the depth and the beauty and the richness of this uh, new community that Jesus is calling the church to be. If you've ever felt like the world is not working right, then the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes are for you. If you've ever felt uh, uh, that your own life was spiraling out of control, then the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes is definitely for you. If you ever felt the despair at how the world is and the state of the environment and climate change and all these things, then the, the Beatitudes are definitely for you. And so even though we're going to focus just on one verse today, as we are in each of these weeks, we're going to just read the whole section just to give us context. And this is what it says. Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up onto the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As I said, we're going to drill just into one verse, verse four. But there's two things we've got to understand before we, before we tackle this. The first is this. We've got to understand as we approach the Beatitudes, they're written in a style called inclusio, which, which means that uh, the last Beatitude and the first Beatitude end with the same promise, which is for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. That the promise is, uh, the print promise, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them, fits like a bookend around the whole uh, section. And what it means is that each of these characteristics uh, is something that we all see in the people who God is calling into his new kingdom. All of the Beatitudes apply to all of God's people. It's not eight separate groups of people, you know, some who are meek and others who are merciful and others who've got to endure persecution. There are eight qualities of the same group. It's an inclusio. They all apply to all the people of God. All of the people of God are called to be meek and merciful and poor in spirit and pure in heart and mourning and hungry and peacemakers and persecuted. And each one of us is called to that who calls ourselves a follower of Jesus. That's the first thing we've got to understand. The, the, the second thing is this. This strange word, blessed. We just don't use this word, blessed, in any real uh, context in, in English today, apart from in a kind of patronizing way when, uh, you know, we, we see a, a, someone, you know, a guy with his shirt on inside out who doesn't know, and it's, oh, bless him, I've actually been there. Or we see, a, you know, a young mum with baby puke down her back. I've actually 
been there as well. But uh, <laughs> oh, bless her! Oh, bless him! Or you know, we see you know a young teenager who's accidentally come to church with his slippers on instead of his shoes. I've actually done that as well. But oh, bless him! You know, each one of those uh, things gives this kind of patronising thing of oh, bless! Oh, bless him! It's that's the only time we really use this uh, context of bless. And actually, some English translations translate the word blessed as happy, but it's a mistake because happiness is so subjective. It comes and it goes. And, and these people might not always be happy. Jesus isn't saying the people of the kingdom, the people of God are, are always happy. He's not saying that at all. No, blessed is something deeper than that. It goes beyond circumstantial happiness. It's a state of well-being in relationship to God. It speaks of the favor of God. It speaks of the, the eternal uh, comfort and favor and pleasure that God has over these people. Blessed are these people, Jesus is saying. So let's dive into that, that kind of backdrop. Let's dive into this verse. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I mean, there's no greater oxymoron is that than that, is there? Blessed, blessed are those who mourn. I mean, Jesus, what on earth are you talking about? How can you be blessed when you're in the state of mourning? And we're gonna look briefly at three questions. What type of mourning is Jesus talking about? How are we called to mourn? And how do we receive the promised comfort that he talks about in this verse? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Comforted. What type of mourning is he talking about? How are we called to mourn? And how do we receive the promised comfort? So the first question, what type of mourning is Jesus comforting? What kind of, what type of mourning is Jesus talking about? Here's a great question. How do we, how do we, how do we answer that? How do we get to that? Well, what we have to do really is look broader through uh, the life of Jesus. Because remember, these blessings, this, these, uh, these um, attributes apply to all God's people. So what you would expect is that when Jesus sees the type of mourning that he's talking about, he will comment on it. And that's exactly what we do see. So in Luke 7, there's a story where Jesus is dining with a man called Simon. Great name. Not such a great guy, but great name. And uh, as he's dining with him, this uh, 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 lady comes in and she starts to, to uh, weep and to wash Jesus's feet with her tears and to kiss his feet and to wipe them with uh, with her hair. This incredible display of mourning. And, and even though others are shocked and are horrified that Jesus even lets this woman touch him, Jesus says actually to her, your sins are forgiven. So the first type of mourning that Jesus commends is mourning over personal sin. The sense of deep connection with our sinfulness and mourning over it, not flipping it off or, or, or just thinking, oh, well, whatever, not being blasé, but the deep mourning over the state of our souls, the, the ugliness that we find on the inside. Jesus commends that and actually says it results in something. Your sins are forgiven. The second type of mourning we see Jesus looking at is the mourning over corporate sin in Luke 19. There's a story of Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. He's weeping because they'd rejected him and he weeps over the sin of that city. So there's not just the mourning of personal sin. There's the mourning over corporate sin. And Jesus himself is the one who models this. He is the one who grieves, who mourns over the state of the city and the state of their sin. And then in John 11, we've got another type of mourning where Jesus comes to a friend, his friend Lazarus's tomb. And it's the shortest verse in the Bible. It says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And he wept even though he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And we know that he knew that. So why did he weep? Well, he weeps when he sees the grieving of his dear friends, Mary and Martha. And he sees the grieving of the people around over Lazarus's death. 
He weeps over the state of the world when it comes to our relationship with death. And then lastly, there's a story of when Jesus' disciples are, are, are challenged over why they're not fasting. And Jesus says this in Matthew 9, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast. Jesus compares himself as the bridegroom here, and us, the, his people, his disciples, as the bride. And that's how the church is often described in the Bible. We are the bride, the bride of Christ, and he is the bridegroom. And so there's these different types of mourning that Jesus is talking about. Mourning over personal sin, mourning over corporate sin, mourning over death and the impact of death, and then mourning over our separation from Jesus. He's saying one day we will mourn over our separation because we're so longing for him. What do these four types of mourning have in common? What are they all, how are they all linked together? Well, ultimately, this is the reality. All mourning is rooted in sin and the impact of sin. It's either our own sin or the sin of others or the sin who pl that plagues mankind. Romans 5 says this, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Sin and death have infected us all. They've infected and impacted us all. And every cause of mourning, think about it. Think when you last mourned and it wasn't connected to some form of sin. It's always connected with sin, either your sin, somebody else's sin, or the, just the state of the world because of sin. Remember, remember, death came into the world because of sin. Even the mourning for Jesus, that sense of separation, actually is a result of sin, because it says right at the beginning of the book, we had uh, a con mankind had connection and union, and we walked with God, and yet we were separated because of our sin. It's all a result of, result of sin. So whether I'm mourning the, the death of a loved one or an unkind word or an unkind email or a betrayal of my own, or my own fallenness, I'm ultimately always mourning over sin. And here's the point. These beatitudes are, are, in, are not individual blessings over some who are meek and some who are merciful and, oh, I'll bless those who are mourning as well. No. What, is, what these Beatitudes are about, they're about a state of being for God's people. We are called to be a mourning people, a people who mourn. We're called to be those kind of people, a people who mourn over the state of our planet, the state of our own souls. We're called to mourn because of the state and the damage and the devastation of sin. Have you, have you mourned? Have you connected deeply? Have you connected deeply with the ravages of sin on your own life? Or do you just flip it out, flip it off? Oh, it's just a it's little thing. It's no, it's no big deal. Have you connected deeply with the damage of sin onto our planet? The impact? Have you mourned it? Because it's, it's easy to mourn things on the surface, the loss of this, the loss of that. Even the losses we're experiencing during COVID, it can be easy to... to to mourn on the surface and never really connect it down to the depth. The real root of the problem is the sin in the world and the sin in our lives, the sin of rebellion against God. And we're all living with the impact from you to me, to the planet, to the animals, to the planet itself. It's all grieving, the Bible says, groaning because of the state of this planet. So how are we called to mourn? And interestingly, that's the second question. How are we called to mourn? And the New Testament uses nine Greek words for mourning. 
And when Jesus said, bless those who mourn, he uses the strongest possible word out of those nine words. It's a word that speaks of a gut-wrenching cry. Like in a couple of funerals I've been been at, not every funeral, but there's a couple I've been at which stick in my memory because of the depth of the mourning, usually when someone who was younger was lost. Like an animal crying in pain, that was the level of the mourning. And the word is also uh, what's called a present participle. Is it, it means it's a continuing word. Jesus is talking here about not just a once-off mourning, perhaps when we recognize our sin for the first time and then, okay, we're fine now. But actually, it's a deep, continual mourning. There's a continuous state. And that's how really we keep soft and humble hearts. When you've really mourned over the lies that you've told and the lust that you've had and the greed that you've lived in and the envy that stained your soul, the laziness, the fear that you've allowed to get a grip of you, the people you've hurt and neglected, the, the hatred and resentment you've allowed to fester on the inside, the things that you should have done that you haven't done and the things that you shouldn't have done when you, that you have. When you reflect on all of that, And then add in the sins of humanity against one another and the sins against the planet and the impact of that suffering. We're called to be people who live in a state of mourning. We should be like Isaiah the prophet, who when he is confronted with an image of vision of the holy God, this is what it says in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He mourned over his own sin. He mourned over the sin of the people around him. David in Psalm 119 says this, tears stream down my, from my eyes because people do not keep your law. And that's how we should mourn. And that's how we should allow the damage in the world around us because of sin to get into our souls. And, and it worries me, honestly, for those who say that they're followers of Jesus and yet haven't had that sense of mourning. Because if you haven't, then you'll just end up self-justifying or minimizing. And you'll even start to wonder, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? I mean, after all, if sin's not that big big a deal, why did Jesus die? What was the big deal about the whole thing? You'll perhaps even become angry with others and blame them for what really you should be taking responsibility for yourself. You'll even blame God. You'll do anything but mourn your part of this mess. And more than that, you'll miss out on the blessing because there's a blessing for those who mourn as we'll come on to. But this is what one commentator wrote. Sadly, the church often does not mourn and therefore does not seek out to be the agents of reformation. Instead of mourning over sin, we're either apathetic towards it where we become spiritually numb and it doesn't bother us or worse, we laugh at sin like the world and sometimes even enjoy it. We watch it on TV and listen to it on our radio. Satan has a wise strategy. He knows that if he can tempt us to laugh at sin, soon it will lead us to acceptance and then it will lead to participation. Do you get it? If we don't truly live as mourners, sin will become a laughable thing to us and sooner or later we'll be joining in and we will lose our power to become agents of change. We've got to mourn. That's the second question. Then the third question is this. How does God then come for us? You might be thinking, Simon, this is like so depressing. I was depressed already, you know, with all this going on. This is so depressing. But you see, Jesus didn't say depressed are those who mourn. He said blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they will be comforted. 
In the same way that we should live in a perpetual state of mourning, we also live in a perpetual state of comfort. In fact, even more than that, we live in a, a perpetual state of rejoicing. That's what it says in the Bible, isn't it? Rejoice in the Lord. It says in Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord. Or well, how is it? Well, when we fully understood the depth of the depravity in our souls and in the souls of those around us, when we finally got that and we've mourned it, then we can truly rejoice because what's happened? Jesus has come. Jesus has come to bring his comfort and his salvation and his hope. And when we've fully understood the depth of our lostness, then we can fully appreciate and celebrate the joy of the fact that he has come and he has come to save us. And that's where all worship comes from, isn't it? How can we worship on a cold and blustery Sunday morning when we're stuck in our homes? How can we celebrate and worship when we look at the state of the world and even look in the state of our own souls? Because Jesus has come and blessed are those who mourn. Because why? Because they will be comforted. This is what Isaiah 40 says. Is Isaiah, the same prophet who grieved over the sin of himself and the sin of his nation and had the vision of God and said, what? Woe is me. Later, God gives him another vision. And this is what he says. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare has ended. Her sin is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places are plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's in this place of mourning that God's comfort is revealed. The comfort of the Holy Spirit, he's the one who's called the comforter, comes to comfort us and to lift us up and to call us and to say, God's coming to your wilderness. He's coming to find you. He's coming and his name is Jesus and he has come for you. He is the only saviour who can save you. And that's how joy and mourning can coexist. Because as we pour out mourning, God pours out his comfort and we rejoice because he saved us. And so we have this kind of joy filled moments of mourning and joy linked together. We lament, we cry, but also we as we grieve, we also are comforted because we know he has come. The Saviour has come. Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3 says, The Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we may be able to comfort those who experience any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts mourners through forgiving their sins and he comforts us with a future hope. Revelation 21 says this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will not exist anymore or mourning or crying or pain for the former things have ceased to exist. So are you mourning, but mourning in faith that the comforter has come? Some, as they've been listening today, you've realized you've been light on sin. You've blamed others. You've blamed God. You've never really taken responsibility. You've never really mourned. You thought you had to defend, but instead you just have to admit. You just have to come to him and say, God, I'm broken because of my sin. And even in that place, instead of self-justifying, just open before him in that place, you can be comforted. You can find Jesus as your saviour today. And others, you've not expected or received that comfort of God. You're stuck in mourning, but in a different way. 
your heart's been closed. And God will come to you today and say, in whatever you're mourning from, let me comfort you. Let me encourage you. Let me, let me strengthen you. Let me give you my joy. Because yes, morning comes for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy comes in the morning. Jesus has come. And we carry that comfort into a sin-stained, broken world. Thanks so much for listening.